Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Uh, with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. And um, Eric, do you remember oh, how many years ago it was? You took some kind of strange, odd, visceral pleasure in the whole thing, I think. There was this time where I managed to throw a cup of coffee over my laptop. And yes. it caused like all kinds of disaster. It was yep. it was it was quite the event. Well, anyway, so look, I take extra precautions these days to avoid doing that. Um, not so, you know, when I'm at my desk, I generally am drinking my coffee from a Yeti mug, you know, which has like the little closable lid and everything. So, but I saw this guy on TV the other day, and he seemed to be making a lot of sense. And um, and so he he prompted me basically to go ahead and take some extra preventative measures. You know, just in case, you know, an accident ever happened again. And so I decided to like really, you know, boost and improve my laptop. And, and so so I did this thing, right? It, it seemed like a really good idea. So I took some bleach and and I injected it into the laptop uh, through the, the USB ports. Um, and, and I just, you know, got that right in there. And, and then... I put the whole thing out in, in direct sunlight because apparently that that also helps. So so um, yeah. So um, also, I found out that despite the lockdown, if you go onto the Samsung website and order a brand new replacement laptop, they will get it to you really fast. Ah, okay. So found that out purely coincidentally. So right. um, so 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 yeah, that's that 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 that's what I've been doing. <laughs> huh. Well, you know, as as you were uh, going through all that, uh, I'm just uh, I'm just sitting here doing the Dr. Deborah Burke's face. You know, uh, di- <laughs> dis- disbelief, uh, questioning all my life choices that got me to this point, uh, trying right. not to touch my face uh, by way of burying right. it in my hands, as I'm instinctively inclined to do uh, as I'm listening to you talk about the things you're doing. Um, but you know, the good news is, um, I know you're just being sarcastic, right, Karen? Because you're known for your highly capable sense of humor and your frequent <laughs> use of sarcasm. Sure. Sarcasm. Let's go with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> of course, it only took about 10 seconds before people were uploading that video of the Dr. Burke's reaction with the Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> exactly. It was <laughs> like, you. we all knew that was coming. <laughs> so, obviously... We've been we've been watching a little bit of cable news over the last week, apparently, judging by our, uh, our conversation. Uh, what else have you been watching? <laughs> you know, actually, I don't watch. Uh, I've been avoiding the cable news, but on mm, Twitter, you can't, you can't, you yeah. can't, you know, so that's that's where I saw that. But um, this was an unusual week for me in terms of uh, viewing no TV binging other than the assigned Monzone episodes, which we'll get to. Uh, right. Only one movie, and I just slipped it in under the wire. Uh, my son and I started on Saturday night and finished on Sunday morning the movie Speed. Uh, oh, yeah. Gosh, yeah, so, I haven't seen that for a long time. Yeah, I was never a fan of this movie. Um, see, Die Hard is my all-time favorite action movie. Uh, okay. And Die Hard is also my son's all-time favorite movie, period. And... I always resented Speed on account of some people, uh, most, mostly girls who thought Keanu Reeves was hot, uh, some people preferring it to Die Hard at the time. Um, but so we watched it first time for me seeing it since around when it came out. And it's pretty much how I remembered a uh, stupid movie. Truly awful acting and some equally awful dialogue. Uh, not even a poor man's Die Hard, but kind of fun and entertaining nonetheless. Right. Um, but in addition to that, I watched 
a steady diet of uh, quote unquote live TV this week. And no binging, but I did watch the Better Call Saul season finale, the finale of The Plot Against America, the ESPN Michael Jordan Bulls documentary, uh, the first night of the NFL draft, and so forth. Um, ah. But now get ready for the twist, Kieran. I finished a book this week. A, 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 a what? <laughs> Yes, it's so it, it's like it's got covers and paper and it's all put together and there's words on the paper. Mm. This is maybe the first book that I finished in about five years, if we don't count books written by friends of mine. Right. Um, <laughs> so I, I do. I have finished a few of those. But otherwise, uh, this was the first book written not by a friend of mine. Uh, the book is um, Hard to Handle, The Life and Death of the Black Crows, written by the band's drummer, Steve Gorman, and uh, goes okay. written by Stephen Hyden. And I love the Black Crows, other than Springsteen and the Beatles. They're my all-time favorite. So I really dug the book, and uh, by, by my slow reading standards, I ripped right through it. Really good, good book, and fortunately, I'm finding myself able to separate the art from the artist and still enjoy the music of the Black Crows, even though I now know the extent to which Chris and Rich Robinson are both colossal dicks after reading the book. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, so that's what I've been up to. Uh, what, what, what are you watching uh, or, or reading if you want to break the rules like I did? Wow. Yeah, I didn't know we were prepared. We were able to like <laughs> break out and do crazy stuff. I know. Um, Going way off script here. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, not a very great deal at this end. I, I don't know about you, but I'm finding in these strange times that that like they seem to be simultaneously dragging and yet speeding past. If <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's I hear weird, that. Right. And um, and each time we sit down to do this, and I I'm like, oh my god, it's been a week since I like did a summary of what I've been watching. Holy crap, how did that happen? <laughs> um, uh, so I'm into season three of Shit's Creek. Still thoroughly enjoying that. Let me, let me, um, let me, let me ask you one question about the, yes, the show. Uh, is I found that like the first season was fine, and then it made a clear leap at the start of season two and pretty much maintained from there. Did you feel the same way, or, or is that not your I impression? I don't think so. I think I quite enjoyed it from the beginning. Now, okay. m- my friend... Uh, who first told me that we needed to sit down and watch this, she said you might have to tough out the first few episodes a bit. Okay. And then it kind of starts to pick up. But, and I guess it took a little while where I was trying to see exactly where they were going with the premise and all of that. Right. But I do, but I will agree, like now that they seem to be, I, I find myself in those first few episodes going, are they going to be in the motel all the way through this? And I'm assuming at this point that they are. <laughs> <laughs> and now that they're like kind of settled in, so I'm at the point now where where Johnny's like, um, helping take over and run the motel and all this kind of okay, stuff. Right, and right. was on the council and and it's just well, just awful. And and <laughs> so now 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 there's this real sense of like really getting to know the characters and the characters are interacting with the others. So so I, I would say that as it's gone on, I've enjoyed it more. But I didn't particularly myself notice that big leap. No. Okay, just curious. No, but um, the other things that I've watched. Um, because we mentioned them both in passing last week, and they are movies that I've only seen about 50 times each. Um, <laughs> we mentioned both the Rocky Horror Picture Show and Tombstone last week mm. in passing while discussing other things. And and so, yeah, I went back and watched them for the 51st time each. <laughs> and um, I, I know that I mentioned last week that I know every word of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh, and I was very pleased to see Joseph Parker adding the time warp to his list of lockdown videos. <laughs> right. Um, but I don't know that I've ever subjected our podcast listeners to the significance that Tombstone has for me. I know I have to you. You can 
put me on mute for the next 30 seconds. <laughs> right. um, I'll, go, I'll go do something else. I'll be back you, in a couple yeah, minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think I first saw Tombstone in about 2000 or so. Uh, fell in love with it. Um, I mean, we have a slight difference. I don't think you, we've discussed this. You're not really an old West, Western genre nah. kind of anyway, are you nah, really? Not, no, no. Um, uh, but I am. I like it, and and I particularly enjoyed this one. I love the script, and, and as does most, as do most people who watch it, particularly enjoy Val Kilmer's Dark Holiday. Um, I ended up enjoying that movie so much that I actually went to Tombstone, Arizona. I convinced the Washington Post magazine to send me there on assignment. Uh, I said to my editor, "Hey, can I go to Tombstone?" He goes, "That sounds interesting. What's the pitch?" And I'm like, "Um, I'd like to go to Tombstone." <laughs> um, and he kind of made me work work it a little bit. But so I ended up going there several times. Uh, and made some good friends there and, and became really quite familiar with the history. So I even more enjoy watching it now. But it must suck to watch it with me because I will do things like say, hey, you know what? The, the, the Birdcage Theater looks exactly right, but it didn't actually open until Christmas 1881, two months after the gunfight at the OK Corral. So, And I do that all the time if I'm watching it with somebody else. So I have a wonderful time watching it by myself, but it's probably <laughs> just not a movie to watch with me. All right. I uh, Note 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 taken i uh, will definitely never watch tombstone with you for a, a variety of reasons uh, there are not... there are many reasons prior to covid that i live alone <laughs> right i so but of those two movies uh, rocky horror and tombstone i have seen them a combined one time i've seen tombstone right. once and uh, not seen rocky horror uh, but you know See how long this uh, this uh, lockdown lasts. Uh, maybe I'll get around to Rocky Horror uh, before. Yes, it's all before you know it, you'll be dressing in fishnets and doing the uh, doing the time warp with the family. Right, and that's uh, maybe without even having seen the movie, I might just <laughs> reach the point where I'm doing that. Who knows? <laughs> Um, all right. And we, we are also uh, both watching the Monzone series, uh, but we're going to save that for the end of the podcast. Uh, not so much because you should be concerned about spoilers, but because our conversation figures to be a bit longer this week. So, uh, you know, if, if you're not watching the series and not interested in, in the discussion, uh, particularly, then better to put that at the end of the show. Uh, and if you are watching along with us, we want to torture you and, and make you listen to the very end to get to that part of the show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So, yes, that is coming up at the end. But uh, we'll start the show uh, with a deep dive on a specific fighter whose bouts will be replayed on Showtime this Friday, May 1st. Errol Spence Jr. Showtime is airing the fight in which Spence won his first welterweight title when he went to Sheffield, England in 2017 and topped Kell Brook, as well as his first title defense from 2018 against Lamont Peterson in Brooklyn. Uh, coming up in a few minutes, we will be joined by Derek James, Spence's trainer, who will shed some light on those two performances from Errol, how he is doing post-car accident and what the future might hold for the man known as the truth but first a bit of discussion and analysis of our own and eric let's start with these two fights that are airing on friday uh, we've we watched them already um anything in particular that you think people should look for as they watch these bouts yeah i think there's an interesting juxtaposition between the two fights as they really provide the opportunity to study the contrast between two types of spence performances with the brook fight uh, where if Spence was the favorite, it wasn't by much. I think it was considered pretty close to a toss-up fight. Mm. Um, with that one, we get to see how he responds when he has some difficulty, when, when the fight is about even at the midway mark, or, or maybe he's even a little behind, and he has to dig deep and, and find another gear and overcome a real challenge. With the Peterson fight, Nothing against Lamont Peterson, a solid fighter, but he was 33 years old, slowing down, 
this was a mismatch and we all knew it, uh, that, that classic safe first title defense. So with that fight, we get to see Spence having it all his way against an overmatched opponent, really showcasing what he can do without having to worry much about what's coming back at him. Mm. The Brook fight is an excellent action fight, a little better than I remembered it. The Peterson fight is mostly only memorable for the human drama of Barry Hunter stopping it in the way that he did. Um, But it's still instructive to see what Spence can do when he's able to put on an offensive show, especially with his body work in that fight. It's a a noteworthy contrast from how he had to fight uh, to win against Brooke. And focusing on, on the Brooke fight, Spence gets a lot of credit for this win. Uh, some still consider it his best win, but it does also tend to get diminished and discredited by some because Brooke was coming off a stoppage defeat against Gennady Golovkin eight months earlier. I personally think that's unfair. Brooke yeah. was still undefeated as a welterweight, uh, had only lost to a middleweight. So I'm curious for your thoughts on this, Kieran. How much more celebrated would this win be if the Triple G Brook fight hadn't happened, if Brook was still undefeated coming in? Uh, or, on the other hand, did the punishment suffered against Golovkin play a key role in softening Brook up enough for Spence to beat him? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, as, uh, as much as we want boxers to, you know, as our, as our buddy Brian Campbell puts it, dare to be great. Right. Um, sometimes boxers are best served telling us to sod off and, <laughs> and just think about their long-term interests. You know, Brook leapt at the Golovkin fight after Billy Joe Saunders sort of, you know, backed out. And I think it was Billy Joe Saunders. It was a Chris Eubank Jr. It was one of those guys backed mm-hmm. out at the last minute. Um, and it probably, sh- to be fair, and Frank, it probably shortened and somewhat diminished what was shaping up to be an excellent career. Um, you know, and how well Brooke did in the first couple rounds of that Golovkin fight, uh, you know, showed how good he was. I don't mean to speak of him in the past tense. He's still got some career going, but, right. you know, that was definitely obviously a key inflection point in his career. Um, it, to me, you know, and I was thinking this when I was watching the the, the Spence fight, it's patently clear why Amir Khan found multiple reasons to avoid Kel because <laughs> I think Kel would have beaten the brakes off of him. Um, but, you know, it's interesting thinking about your question. I think coming into the fight, Brooke came into it with his reputation probably enhanced by the fact that he put in such a strong effort against Golovkin and that he was really the first person to show any kind of vulnerability in Golovkin. And, right. right? And he was the one who started that whole, oh, maybe Golovkin can be gotten that. Um, and so... And I think there was an understanding he'd gone up to, not only gone up to weight classes, but gone up to weight classes to face a guy who at that time was just blasting through everybody. Um, and, he, and he clearly, I think, enhanced that as the fight went on, you know, especially over the first part of the fight. You know, he's really showing his class over the first six or so rounds when he was really probably the first person to give Errol Spence as much trouble as Spence was getting. Um, but the way it ultimately ended ironically the fact that it ended with an eye injury right. and, and and brooke having to take a knee the same way he fell to golovkin no matter that it was the other eye this time you could almost feel almost as it happened a sense of going from oh this is a great fight brooke showing what a good fighter he is spencer showing what a good fighter he is for overcoming him to oh golovkin broke him right. almost right i mean that's a slight exaggeration but the fact that it ended a little bit like that did perhaps you could, if you wanted to, you could look at that and think, oh, Spence was just finishing what Golovkin had started, which is a shame because it was actually an excellent performance by Spence. It was the first time that, you know, we always want to say 
when you've got a fighter who's coming up, well, how does he how does he fare when he's up against it, when he has right. to dig deep, when he has to come from behind? And Spence showed us all of that. And uh, and I don't actually think that had really anything to do with what had happened between Brook and Golovkin. But the fact that it ended in that way gave a sense of, oh, uh, well, Brooks' face is permanently broken now, and that that's just the way it is, um, which is a shame. It, it could perhaps have taken a bit of shine off it, but I thought it was a tremendous performance from Errol Spence. Yeah, and, and it's just to provide something interesting to look for when people watch the replay. Is sort of like, at what point yeah. does the eye seem to start bothering Brooke, and at what point does Spence really take over, and... Which came first, essentially? Did, did well, I was just going to say, I think Spence turned it around first, yeah. and the eye was a consequence. It wasn't that Brooke was winning, and then suddenly he has eye problems, and Spence takes over. That was how I interpreted it. Yeah, and I, I kind of lean the same way, but it's hard to know exactly for sure. Like, the eye started swelling a little bit underneath, yeah. and I'm not sure if that's when the damage was done, or if the damage came later. And so it's sort of something interesting to look for to try to determine uh, yeah. You know exactly how much it's uh, Spence Spence winning the fight versus Kell Brook's eye causing him to yeah uh, to to recede. Yeah, yeah. So we're going. Showtime is going to show these two bouts. Um, as you said, real contrasting Errol Spence fights. Uh, other than those two, uh, do you have a favorite Errol Spence performance? Something that you would always recommend that people go and check out? Yeah, I, I do. And there are a few to choose from uh, because the Sean Porter fight was very close and exciting and he pulled it yep. out. And the Mikey Garcia fight was a dominant display against a, a pound for pound level opponent. But I have a bit of a different perspective on Spence's career because I got to sit ringside for two of his key fights on the way up when I was the unofficial scorer for NBC for his fights against Chris Algieri and Leonard Bundu, both of those in 2016. And man, that Algieri performance is a favorite of mine. It really stands out. It was eye-opening. Like we knew Spence was talented. We expected him to beat Algieri. But Algieri was a huge step up at the time. He, he'd faced some of the best in the game and hadn't been stopped. He'd gone the distance with both Manny Pacquiao and Amir Khan. And the Khan fight was competitive, in fact. Mm. Um, and Spence just walked right through him, dominated the whole thing, knocked him down with a big left hand in round four, two more times in round five, and it was over. Uh, the Bundu fight was dominant also, uh, and it reached a huge audience, something like six million viewers on wow. NBC, because it came right after the Olympic basketball gold medal game. Uh, remember uh, Olympics and, and basketball? Uh, those were the days, right? Um, but anyway, you know, good win there for Spence, but it's the Algeria one that, for me, was the performance where I came away like, wow, this kid looks like he's going to be something special. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, no Olympics, no basketball, no boxing. Uh, this COVID-19 crisis comes along at an interesting time for Spence. Uh, he turned 30 in January, which puts him right in his prime, but marks one of those age milestones where a fighter should start thinking about the fact that the clock is ticking. He was in the midst of a bit of a layoff anyway because he got in a harrowing car accident in October and had to take some time to recover, but now he's getting more time off than he wanted. Is there an urgency, Kieran, for Spence to make big moves as soon as fights resume? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Somewhat, I guess. Um, you know, his situation is interesting. Like you said, he's 30, which particularly for like a welterweight fighter is neither young nor old, right? It is that sort of pivot point, isn't it? And it, he is at the point now, irrespective of COVID, where he should really be focused on 
big fights, capital letter, big fights. Mm. Um, well, you know, it's interesting thinking about him. Like, on the one hand, he still feels like he's almost a relative newcomer, right? He's he's only been having these kind of, like, big-level fights for a few years. Like I said, Kel Brook was, was bought 2017. Right. And yet, you look at that resume he's got already. I mean, we already talked about some of them. Garcia, Porter, Peterson, Brook, Algieri. I mean, he's racked up a a pretty impressive uh, a bunch of victims mm. already. And, you know, I guess, and, and I think we're going to talk about this a little bit uh, just coming up, because it, it's almost like, well, who is left for him to face now other than the really big names? It's If he were to just stick around and, and not be really stepping it up a level, it's almost like he'd be standing still or, or even going backwards because he's gotten such a good resume already. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, you, you do feel that, you, you know, and we'll talk to Derek James about this, but he's got to come back, obviously, from that, from, from that accident and get himself back into shape. But you would think that pretty soon you're going to want him to see those big fights. But in that case, in his case, I mean, outside of, say, Manny Pacquiao, which would not be a contest, um, that does mean facing Terrence Crawford. Um, and we can ask Derek what he thinks is the likelihood of that. But yeah, so on the one hand, if he wants to make the big fights, yes, he's probably got to do it soon. But there aren't that many big fights left for him. So, I don't know. Let's talk about that, actually. What big fights there are for him. So, no point asking you what the dream fight is, because it is Crawford. Right. Um, but say that doesn't happen. Right? Let's continue the discussion. What is the second best option for him if he, you know, comes out, maybe has a tune-up fight, you know, to, to get all the cobwebs out? What do we want to see him do? Who do we want to see him face? All right. So I guess there's different perspectives on this. If I'm managing and promoting Spence, then then I think it's an easy question to answer. And it's the name you just dropped. And it's right. Manny Pacquiao. Uh, that, that's the name you want on your resume. Um, and, you know, we agree that Spence almost certainly beats Manny right now. And it, it probably pays a decent chunk of change. Um, but, uh, you know, that's that's from the perspective of managing and promoting Spence as a fan or a, a journalist. I think there are a couple of opponents at 147 that can test him. And the one that maybe stands out is Danny Garcia. Mm. I think he has the style and the skill to really make Spence work, just as Sean Porter did. Um, but if I can play matchmaker and do whatever I want and and rush guys into fights that are probably at least a couple of years away from happening, give me Errol Spence Jr. versus Virgil Ortiz Jr. in Oof. Dallas. Uh, that's... Ball. Yeah, that's now we want to wait until there's uh, uh, able to gather big crowds. Uh, you know, that's that could be a, a Cowboys stadium kind of fight. Um, but, you know, that's a whole lot of talent on display. And uh, it's, it's probably not ready yet. But then again, you know, we're getting uh, Lomachenko versus Teofimo Lopez yep. at lightweight, hopefully this year. Uh, and to me, Spence Ortiz could be kind of the welterweight version of that. Ah, that's a really good call. Yeah, uh, I, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I was just thinking about who all else there is sort of around the top of the division, and he's beaten a lot of them yeah. um, already uh, of the others. I, I don't feel – a while back, I thought it would be an interesting fight, but I don't think I really feel the need to see him against Keith Thurman because I just have this sense now that Keith's a bit too broken probably. Yeah. Um, I mean, it would be fine. If it happened, it would be fine. It would right. be good, and, and Thurman would – Surely give a good accounting of himself, but you know, having having lost close to Manny Pacquiao and an admittedly very good fight, and then having to take more time off with an injury, it just feels like the clock is ticking there on, on Keith Thurman. I also put Danny Garcia. I seem to remember 
neither of us was super enthusiastic about it when when that time when Garcia stepped into the ring after the Mikey Garcia fight. And we're like, oh, this is going to be next, is it? Right. Um, but actually, there's not very many people left. Right. Um, and, and of them, he'd be good. Sergey Lipnitz would be kind of interesting. But I was also wondering, you know, Spence, I think, is pretty solid and big for 47. Um and the one, yes, we want him to ultimately face Terence Crawford, and I do love your idea of somebody like Virgil Ortiz. But I also kind of wonder, you know, 54 is stacked. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of good fights at 54. Could he go up to 54 instead of, you know, just, just biding his time at 47, waiting for the big fights to come along? And if he did that, could he go back to 47 to meet a Terence Crawford or, if necessary? I mean, there are some really good fights in there. Obviously, one of them's off the table because Derek James, you know, trains Jamel Charlo. Right. But um, even still, there's a lot of mixing and matching to be done there. I, I wonder if that's a possibility. Yeah, that, that did cross my mind as well. There are a lot of good fights there. And um, yeah, I, 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 Spence is in an interesting spot here where, uh, you know, there's one clear super fight, but then there are. Uh, from the the Danny Garcias and the Keith Thurmans to all the guys at 154 to some of the really top guys at 140, all in and around his weight. There are a lot of like mm. A minus type fights that I'd be very interested in. Yep. But uh, well, so much for what we have to say about it and what we think about it. Uh, let's turn now to a guy who knows Errol Spence Jr. In fact, has forgotten more about Errol Spence Jr. in the last couple of minutes than we'll ever know. Uh, He was voted the 2017 Trainer of the Year by Ring Magazine and Yahoo Sports, and he is the trainer of Errol Spence Jr. Derek James joins us. Derek, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Um, These are very unusual times, and before we talk any boxing... I'd love to check in with you. What, what we've been doing with our guests is the start of every interview, just doing a basic check-in. You know, how are you doing during this time? How is your family? Is everybody well? How are you coping? We're doing well. I mean, I'm doing good. My family's great. We're, we're coping just fine. I mean, my daughters are not complaining at all. My wife is not complaining. And, you know, so my son, he's okay. So everything's okay. We're doing good. Yeah, that's good. How, how old are your kids? I have two 10-year-olds. And a 24-year-old, so yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, I have, I have a 13 and a 10, so in that same sort of range where uh, they, they can kind of deal with it, uh, whereas I have brothers with two-year-olds and toddlers, right. and that, that I'm, I'm glad I'm out of that phase while this is going. <laughs> right. and my wife is doing all the homeschooling, so it doesn't, doesn't fall on me, so that's a great deal. There you go. <laughs> um, so we had uh, Stephen Breadman Edwards on several weeks right. ago uh, when the shutdown was just starting. And he spoke about dealing with his gym being closed and having to trust his fighters to stay motivated and in shape without him babysitting them. H- how has that been for you? How, how are you communicating with your fighters and, and keeping an eye on them? Well, through video. I call them, but at the same time, when I'm running in the morning, I make a video every morning. I'm jumping rope, working out, I make a video or something, and I send it to them just for inspiration. Like, we have, like, about four or five guys that work out in the gym. I'll send something to Jamel Charlo, out, you know, or Arrow, and that's every morning, every day, shoot them a video. I know they're getting tired of seeing me, but I'm going <laughs> to do it, they can do it. So that's what it's all about. Okay. Uh-huh. You, you mentioned uh, Errol, and let's turn to the main topic on today's podcast, which, which is Errol Spence. Uh, his fights with Kel Brook and Lamont Peterson will both be replayed on Showtime this week. Uh, let's talk, first of all, about that Brook fight. It, it was a tough one. Um, 
but it was also a very, very important one. And looking at it again, I kind of feel like it might actually, tell me if you disagree, but it might be his greatest win so far. And I wonder if you agree with that. And if there were any points in that fight, were you a little worried that maybe it was getting away from him at all? No, I mean, I think that, it, you, I mean, I think you could possibly say that probably was his best win because it was a very sturdy, very, and at the time, going into the fight, he was looked at as the best welterweight in the world. And he's very strong and very physical. I think that, I mean, even in the beginning of the fight, I had it like up to five rounds, maybe three to two, you know, so Kel could be, could have been up, but I think that once we talked and I just sort of put your hands up, just walk to him, walk him down, because you realize that you were getting to him with the body shots and just breaking him down and breaking him down. It was just a constant chop, chop, chop. And after that, he was there and he got him. I mean, so it was really good, but Kel is very tough, very durable. And um, that's the kind of opposition that it takes to make fighters great. And we said we all fighters always need a great dance partner. And Kel was a great dance partner because he's very strong, very physical. And he didn't L had to break him to make him quit. Because he wasn't going to quit. So it was a good deal. Right. Right. It did feel re-watching it. It sort of reminded me. It almost felt as if there came a point, like a random midway point, where yeah. it did seem as if you guys said, you know, enough of this, stuff this, let's just walk this guy down and push right. it backwards. And, right. and as if like, you, you, you flipped that switch at some point. Because you know what's funny about it? We were in the corner and I told her, I said, listen, okay, walk him down behind the jab. That's exactly what I said, right? Then mm-hmm. the next round, when he, when he got to him and saw that it was getting to him, he came back and I didn't say anything. He said, walk him down? So yeah. So he knew like exactly. And he was basically asking for confirmation. That's, I said, yeah, mm-hmm. go ahead and do it. So that's when it was like when he started to take over. Because, I mean, we threw a lot of punches. So Errol throws a lot of punches, if you think about it. So it's hard to keep up with the pace. Right. I always say that these guys are in great condition, but they can't keep up. They're in great condition to fight their own pace. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm pushing a pace that's a little bit faster, a little bit tougher for those guys. And you see what happened. He broke down. It was great. Right. Well, the, the Peterson fight was, was a very different kind of fight. There was no need to flip a switch in that one because uh, yeah. Errol really dominated it from the start. Uh, you mentioned his, his body work against Brooke. That's what really stood out to me in the Peterson fight, that his punches to the body were, were particularly devastating. Um, how important is body punching to Errol's success in general? And, and are there any particular memories that stand out from that, that win over Lamont Peterson? I mean, I think that, you know, we, we, we have several punches that we work on in the gym. And Errol's like, man, I don't like throwing that punch. So he said, this one particular punch, he doesn't like throwing it. Hmm. And so he's fighting Lamont. And, and so we know that, like, Kel was a very, very rough, rugged guy. So we know we have to be durable. Lamont, very slick, very intelligent. So we knew what we had to do to fight him, and it was kind of be. And what else, what we did was we fought each fighter at what they do best. So Errol was very slick, very dope. He kind of moved around in the right place at the right time. And with Lamont, he, he started breaking down with body shots, but I think that when he hit him to the body, it made him cognizant of that. And that's what we were able to go to the top because he was – Folks, so maybe you'll hit me to the body and we went to the top. So it was like mix up the punch selection, which was great. Hmm. 
Were, were those body shots in that fight? You were talking about how there are certain punches in the gym. Sometimes Errol doesn't want to throw. Were you specifically saying for that fight he wasn't he wasn't feeling the body shots until during the fight he realized they were working? Well, no, it was a punch to the head. If you if you realize he the punch that he knocked him down with to the head mm-hmm. was the punch that I don't like doing the punch. <laughs> But okay. that was the punch he knocked him down with. So <laughs> I was like, I said, throw the punch. So right. what he did was he, he opened up the shots. You know, so it's like, you know, he, he knows that it works, right? But he was like, I don't like doing the punch. So <laughs> while we're practicing and training, uh. I just said he's going to be open for that. Right. And so what happened, he opened up for that, and he saw it and threw the punch at the right time and knocked him down. It was great. All right, yeah. So whether you like it or not, if it gets results, right. that's the punch to throw. <laughs> You're right about that, yeah. Whether you like it or not, it's right. Yeah, true. Um, so since those fights, you know, Errol sort of gone on up yet another level, really. You know, one, that one-sided win over Mikey Garcia, the, the closer victory over Sean Porter. But then came the car accident. And if, if you don't mind, could you walk us through a little bit of what your emotions were? First, when you heard about the accident, and then when you realized that he'd gotten out of that accident with so few injuries. Well, I'm, I'm a guy who I normally deal with what reality is. I don't let my mind wander to what if or what whatever. So when they, I, they called me, I got up, got dressed, we ran to the hospital. And when I got there, they told me that he would be okay. I talked to the police officer who was on the scene. And he just told me about how he flew out of the car like 40 feet out of the car mm. in the air across the, across the medium, across the uh, roadway. And um, when the doctor said it was okay, I was okay. When they mm. said he was, because my thing is like not so much about boxing, because I love him as an individual. And sure. So I want him to be okay for his family, for his kids. So, I mean, um, it's uh, it, it, it was very traumatic, but at the same time, when I heard that he was okay, I was okay. Oh, one other question about the accident is we were somewhat critical on the podcast of one of the comments that Errol made after the accident where he seemed to be playing up his invincibility rather than sounding grateful to have survived. You know him much, much better than we do, of course. Do you feel as though a lesson has been learned and that this incident has caused him to mature? I think that, I think that the whole process as a whole, being a fighter, being um and the incident, it helps you mature without a doubt. Because the thing about we as regular people living every day, it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of a guy like that. Mm. To to kind of like um, everything he goes through, everything he endures every day, not being able to go outside during the daytime, simple stuff like that. Even when not not like before the pandemic, right. and um, the interaction with the fans and people. So I think that. This is a process of growth for the individual. And, I mean, he's learned from it. He acknowledges it. And, uh, you know, he's just uh, focusing on moving forward and uh, getting better. Because now he has to work back to get to something. Right. Think about in training camp. In training camp, you go, he had one fight. He started working out. He gets in shape. He's okay. This time he has to work towards something to right. get back to where he was before. So, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's a challenge. But, I think that it's something that is learning, something that helps you to uh, helps you uh, to be better. I mean, it sounds a little bit like you know when we do all come back that you're slightly easing back a little bit. Um, and but the multi-million dollar question, I guess we all want to know, is at some point when everything gets back to normal and, and, and Earl's had, had a fight, maybe 
Do you think that in the near-ish future, we are finally going to see Errol Spence Jr. against Terence Crawford? I think that's a possibility. I think that's a great fight. I think that. But like I said and I say all the time is that it's a great fight, but the money's not there. Mm. I, think, I mean, like, from, from, from the pay-per-view buys, from uh, the numbers that Terence Crawford get when he fights, the numbers, the, the financially, the numbers aren't there, I don't think, for two networks to come together. Mm. You know, the fighters can make money, but where does the network make their money? Right. Where, does it, where, does it, the, where does top rank make their money? Where does premier boxing champions make their money? I think that that's why the fights, because when Terence fight, the numbers aren't there. I think that, but but eventually, I think the fight will happen. I think that you know it'll happen. Uh, who knows? But I hope so. I think that's a fight that I would love to see. I know the fans would love to see it, but I think that it's something to show that Errol is the best sports weight in the world. It's you know, there's been a lot of talk about how when boxing comes back, maybe it will initially be you know in behind closed doors kind of a thing. Yeah, it sounds yeah. as if from what you're saying is. That's a fight that's going to need a lot of gate receipts. Like we, that's not going to happen until everything's back to normal and we can get crowds and arenas, right? By the sounds of things. Well, uh, well, I think that, I think that if you look at Errol, Errol's fights, right? And he sells tickets, he sells out. So he sold forty-eight thousand at the Dallas Cowboys Stadium. You know, fourteen to fifteen thousand at the Star. Thirty thousand in the UK. I think twenty something when he fought Sean. But when you look at Terence's number, he's selling eight thousand. Maybe ten, but it's not about the. It's not so much. I don't think about the tickets purchased as it is the pay per view buys. So I, I think that you. that's an aspect also that we have to let America get back with. You know what I mean? I think right. that you can't hit them right with that right off the bat. Right. Even though they want it, you know, it's like uh, the money's not there from from the from the fan base, or I believe, or or from a business standpoint, from you know. Um, the opposition. So I think once it once it grows and he gets out there and he builds his, you know, because there's no other fighter in the world really as decorated as Terrence Crawford other than Pacquiao. Pacquiao is kind of almost out. But I mean, Terrence is very decorated, very accomplished, but decoration and accomplishment does not um, generate, always generate funds or fan base. So I think that's what it is, most of the evening, right. but I love I love the way he fights. I love him as a fighter. And I think it'll be great once we get everything back rolling. And maybe like next year, the year after, maybe hey, it'll be a great fight. Right. All right. And uh, of course, uh, Errol isn't the only star in your stable. You also trained Jermel Charlo, uh, who avenged his disputed loss to Tony Harrison in an excellent fight last December. Uh, what's the plan now with, uh, with Jermel? What, what's the next major fight on the horizon for him, do you think? Well, I think that, well, I want to first start out by saying, send my, as I said, my condolences before, because now it's about, you know, um, Tony's father, mm-hmm. great, great friend, great individual, very soft-hearted, very, um, he's a good coach. I like him. I, I spent a little time with him from time to time in the press conference and everything, but I think that Jamel is, Jamel is, man, he's, um, he's getting ready. You know what I mean? He's getting ready and, um. He, you know, he. Everybody wants to see a unification bout. You know what I mean? So I think that that could be possibly somewhere down the line in the next year or two. I mean, because you know, uh, the guy that just beat uh, Julian Williams mm-hmm. is the other champion. So I mean, they were building the fight for him and Julian. Right. So who knows if it's him? 
nets, which, you know, it could be possible. We'll see. Right. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's certainly a, a talent packed division. A lot of, a lot of guys that are, would make for interesting matchups there near, near the top. So I guess the attitude with the, with Jermel is kind of, you'll take, you'll, you'll take whatever the opportunity that comes across your, your table is. He's looking for a big fight. Right. I think that, you know, every, there, there's not a big fight. There's not a fight. There's not a big fight in that, in that division. Hmm. You think about Tony Harris. If you think about this, there, there were three lies in, in this boxing life with Tony Harrison. Tony Harrison, the, the, when he's coming up, right, the, the prospect. Tony Harrison, the challenger. But Tony Harrison, the, cha- the champion, was a totally different fighter. Mm-hmm. So I think that he had a rebirth as well. So I was like, he hasn't gone anywhere. You have Julian Wayne, he's always there. You have uh, a couple other guys. and you know, So it's going to be great. I think it's a great talent rich. Division just as well as the division as well. So you see a lot of good boxing uh, coming up, and uh, hopefully everything works out right. All right. Well, well as I mentioned, we've, we have uh, Stephen Breadman Edwards on the podcast uh, somewhat regularly. So if by chance uh, we get a, a Jermel versus Julian Williams fight at some point, maybe we'll have you both on the podcast together to uh, talk a little smack to each other. Well, man, I'm not a smack <laughs> talker, man. You know, but, but can, I, I, listen, I can do the because see, I'm just I'm not taking the punch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not taking one punch, so I mean, you know, my smack talking doesn't even count up to anything. But uh, <laughs> you know, we, we're very respectful to each other, and I like Bradman as a as an individual. You know, what I mean, he's a, he's a nice guy. We talk via text from time to time, and uh, you know, um, you know, I mean, I think Julian will be back. I mean, he's not going anywhere. Okay. You know, especially with the, with the lineup, it's always a big fight moment, mm-hmm. and he's the guy who his talent and his uh, skill set puts him right back in the mix. Hey, like Derek, thank you so much for putting some time aside to talk to us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, hopefully we will all see each other ringside sometime soon. And right, until right. then, be safe and be well. And thanks again for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate you guys. I love you guys. Showtime is my family. I love Showtime. You know, you do other things with other people, but you know, like, nothing <laughs> like the Showtime family. I love Steven. It's good, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. Thanks a lot, man. Thank you, Derek. Okay, let's move on to the news of the week, and we'll start with the sad stuff. First, we have two notable boxing community deaths from COVID-19 to report, starting with the one that Derek James just alluded to. Ali Salam, father and trainer of Tony Harrison, died from the virus last week at age 59. Salam was not just the father of a pro boxer, he was also the son of a pro boxer, middleweight and light heavyweight contender Henry Hank. And Salam himself had a brief career as a welterweight, compiling a professional record of 11 and 7 in the 1980s. Our thoughts go out to Tony Harrison and his family. And in addition to Ali Salam dying, on Tuesday, Francisco Mendez, the founder and owner of the Mendez Boxing Gym on East 26th Street in New York City, died from COVID-19 at age 61. Mendez is the gym's second fatality from this virus. As Cutman and trainer Nelson Cuevas, whose passing we reported on a few weeks ago, worked out of the Mendez boxing gym. So very oh, sad stuff. God, that's got to just be terrible for the yeah. for the folks there at that gym. And yes, um, with you there and condolences to the Tony Harrison family. Um, all right, let's try and find some upbeat news here. Um, so here's the thing. We've been talking about there being no live boxing. Hey, live boxing's back <laughs> yeah. um, in very limited fashion. Um, 
In Managua, Nicaragua, on Saturday night, Buffalo Boxing Promotions staged a five-fight card. It was kind of a club show, really, yeah. um, with pretty much everyone but the boxers uh, and the referee um, wearing face masks. Fans scattered and distanced to a degree. Um, the fight's appearing to go off without issue. Uh, it is in a country, it should be noted, in which uh, COVID-19 has not spread much to this point. Um, I didn't watch the entire card. I, I watched parts of it. I was mostly interested um in in just how the whole thing sort of looked uh, it's always a bit odd to watch a club card on on tv or online because the atmosphere and everything else is always so different um even being ringside at a small card like this is different but this seemed seemed odd <laughs> i mean yeah the crowd was largely dispersed but not entirely uh, there were little pockets of people together perhaps there were family members i don't know it was a bit strange uh, I, i'm unsure how effective to see the ring announcer and the tv commentators wearing masks yeah. uh, i'm not certain of the efficacy of having fighters wear masks during ring walks but not when they're breathing and sweating on each other um i i don't know it felt weird like on the one hand yay boxing but on the other hand as much as we're desperate for it to be back i, I don't know how long we would be content if this is what it's going to look like but who knows, right? It's not. We think it's up to us to determine how the future looks, and it really isn't. It's right. up to this virus to decide. So, I don't know. I guess. I guess if the virus decrees that this is how our world is going to be for a while, so be it. Um, uh, meanwhile, we have been reporting on the steady stream of updates out of Japan with regard to their boxing schedule. They've now extended their ban through the end of June, um, and. We learned this week that the UFC intends to proceed with fights in a closed venue in Florida on May 9th, uh, although Dana White's plans, as we talked about, were thrown off in the uh, last few days, the last time he tried this. So we'll see whether this comes to fruition or not. Um, so we're seeing a variety of approaches in different parts of the world. Eric, uh, what are your thoughts on what you saw in, in, in Nicaragua? And with all of this, it seems to be all over the place. Do you, are you getting any clear sense from all these different news items of when major boxing might actually start to return? So like you, I just watched little bits and pieces of the Nicaragua card on YouTube, didn't, didn't watch any full fights, just kind of wanted to mm -hmm. get a sense of what it looked like. And yeah, it, it, it's weird. J just as the Showbox card from March was weird. Mm -hmm. um, but... I'm fine with weird boxing with face masks and, <laughs> and limited crowds as an alternative to no boxing at all. Um, but I, I, we certainly need to wait and see, uh, you know, in, in the next three weeks, is there an increase in COVID cases in Nicaragua? Uh, that's that's going to be an, an important question right. to have answered. They seem to take precautions fairly well, temperature checks and hand sanitizer for everyone upon entry. I didn't see any word on whether fighters and referees were actually tested for the virus. I mm. would hope so. Um, but supposedly Nicaragua has only had three deaths and 11 positive tests in the whole country. That might mean there are actually like 100 or 200 cases or more. Right. But the point is, it's a little safer to try something like this there than in an area where the virus has spread significantly. But again, hard to know if this was a success until three weeks or so from now, if there's no spike in cases, then I'd say it was a success. Um, but between this and what UFC is trying, we're seeing that in certain places with certain precautions, combat sports are going to try to return. I wouldn't expect any major boxing anywhere before June. Um, but mm. if this is all deemed successful, especially if the UFC event is successful, uh, you know, a, a few weeks after that event, 
with people itching to end lockdown and, and return to normalcy, I would fully expect semi-major boxing, maybe in that same UFC building in Florida, to get moving. Um, we see that a lot of people are increasingly ready to take their chances, uh, some of them yeah. trying to be as safe as they can about it. But still, uh, at this point, I would be somewhat surprised if we don't have... You know, not a not a super fight, but a fight on the level of that Shakur Stevenson top rank card that got scrapped. I would be somewhat surprised if a fight on that level televised live doesn't happen by sometime in June. Um, but we'll see. You know, the 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 way the country is failing to lock down with any consistency, and thus we're seeing new waves of cases in various places. Maybe it'll get a whole lot worse in May, and 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 I'll end up looking stupid for thinking June is possible. But if I'm setting a line right now for a decent live US TV boxing card, I might go like June 15th. And I, I, I don't know. Okay. Would, would, would you take over or under on that uh, on that line? Did you specify major card or just card? I can't. Like, let's say a, a Shakur Stevenson like, like level Shakur card. Stevenson yeah. I'm still going to take the over, but not necessarily much over. Okay. I, I think. I think if nothing's happened through June, yeah, and unless there is like another big spike, people right. are going to start getting super antsy. Yeah, and they already yeah, they I, already are. To they an already extent, are. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> Heck, look, we had a, a a nice day here in Vermont, and Vermont's been great, right? As you would expect, Vermonters are just very you know socially minded and whatnot, and and then the curve is well and truly flattened. We don't have many cases, but as soon as there was a nice day. Here this weekend, people were out. Right, and, right. Um, summers are coming, and people are going to want to be doing things and, and I'm watching sports soon. So, yeah, yeah, I, I'd go a little bit over, but poss- but not by very much. Okay. Uh, all right, let's uh, let's now get to our Monzone discussion. Finish the show uh, with a with, with that with uh, talking about episodes three, four, and five of the series. I gave my quick take first last time uh so you go first this time kieran are, are you liking the show any more or any less after three more episodes i'm actually quite enjoying it um you know i'm finding that the episodes are zipping past um look it isn't orson wells but <laughs> it's it's it, i'm finding it perfectly enjoyable um for me it's interesting because i actually don't know a great deal about carlos Monzon. um and in episodes four and five in particular, they make quite a big deal about his hands and then how fragile they are because of malnutrition when he was young and how he's being advised to give up his career and so forth and how he needs injections to numb the pain. And there's one scene that shows him needing to find a doctor in Italy to administer a shot prior to his title bout with, with Nino Benvenuti and uh, that wore off in the fight. I don't know if any of that is true. I have no <laughs> idea if any of that is true or not. I don't know if you know, but... um. But as I was thinking to myself, well, this seems like a, a an odd thing to belabor if it weren't true. And and some of the points that I was I, I was making as I was watching it is I did think that, that there were some interesting attentions to detail. Like, you know, even in the 1988 scenes, the place is kind of grubby, basically. Mm. Uh, you know, there's paint coming off window seals and walls and and whatnot. And and that's you know, Argentina was a bit of a mess then. They were just five years removed from getting rid of the military dictatorship. The economy was had kind of picked up and then cratered again. And and I'm like, oh, okay, that's just a nice, interesting little like 
detail. And and the ending of the Benvenuti fight was an exact replica right. of the real thing. <laughs> uh, exact replica. Benvenuti backed across the ring into a corner, and then he polaxed and crumpled forward in that interesting way from a right hand. And then his cornerman entered the ring as the referee's reaching the end of the count, and they're still not quite sure what the cornerman is trying to do. It, but it's a complete like moment-by-moment reenactment. So I thought, well, okay, they're they're putting some real attention to detail here, so that the thing with the hands must obviously be true. But um, some who know far more about Carlos Monzon than I do have actually expressed some issues with a number of uh, uh, the scenes in terms of their accuracy. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, let me let me read what uh, veteran promoter Russell Peltz uh, he he promoted Benny Briscoe for his second fight with with Monzon. Okay. Uh, he he shared. Uh, this on social media a few weeks ago and interesting he wrote this after seeing episode five so he was right where we are now um russell writes about how in the fourth episode they used footage from the second briscoe fight and tried to pass it off as footage from the first fight um Mm. which i suspected simply because monzone's hair looked too short for it to be 1967 um but whatever to to me that's no big deal you know that's the fight that footage exists of so they they played fast and loose a little there but here's what else russell says quote they give you the impression that monzone pressured promoter tito lector into getting him a title fight with nino benvenuti shortly after the briscoe fight when in fact it took three more years and 29 more fights they show the Monzone Benvenuti weigh-in, and that's a gas. Benvenuti comes to the weigh-in with a WBC belt on his shoulder. Not. There were no green WBC belts back then. That fight was for the world title, not any alphabet title. And I wish BoxTrek.com would stop listing world title fights back in the day as WBC slash WBA title fights. <laughs> then they give you the impression, due to the amount of time elapsed, that the weigh-in took place the day before the fight weigh-in still took place the day of the fight in 1970. As for the fight itself, the trainer, Amilcar Brusa, tells Monzone between rounds that he is behind on points and needs a knockout to win. In fact, it was a one-sided route. Monzone beat Benvenuti like he owned him and stopped him in the 12th. Um, so, And I'll just note that Monzone Benvenuti was named the ring fight of the year in 1970. So maybe it was in between the two extremes. Uh, You know, Monzone wasn't trailing and didn't need a knockout, but that at least Benvenuti had had some success in parts of the fight from, and if from I what I read about with it. My, with my guy in Italy against Italy's big <laughs> champion, I'd tell him he needed a knockout. Right, that's true. It could have been one of those cases where he was told he needs a knockout even if even if he didn't. So, um, But I, it's funny, I had sort of the same reaction as you did in terms of realism. I, is it, what, it was the hand thing that made me wonder because I know a bit about Monzone but hadn't studied him too carefully, and so either I Either I didn't know about his hand problems or I'd read about it somewhere and kind of forgotten about it. But so I did do a search uh, and there is stuff out there about him having hand problems. So they certainly didn't make it up out of whole cloth, whether they exaggerated some of it, uh, made up scenes with doctors and injections. I don't know. From from what Russell's saying here, it does seem like they they took some liberties in general. Mm, And and it does sort of come across. and, And I understand that and, and, and there's an element of detail that that folks like us can get wrapped up in but it does feel as if like monzone's still like this young up-and-coming kid who's not ready for a title shot when he gets the title shot it was his 80th fight right <laughs> partly that's because they fought 20 times a year right but, but yeah um but you know that's okay that's kind of that's somewhat forgivable i guess i mean you know the time scales do get compressed that's I, I understand that in terms of telling telling the story, especially because they're telling that story in flashback. So, right. um, I'm not sure how much of it is is us getting overly 
tied up in stuff or but it does seem funny like if they went to all that attention to detail with the benvenuti fight where they wouldn't address some of the other things and but as long as the basic lines of the story are pretty accurate i'm i'm not gonna toss it overboard just yet myself i don't know about you yeah i kind of have the same feeling but it all depends on your closeness to the subject like i totally i totally get russell getting bent out of shape because when i saw the mickey ward movie the fighter uh the handful of things that they sort of changed and 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 moved around really bothered me because i'm a big mickey ward fan i was like oh come on that's not how it happened or, or you know so so it's one of those things where if you just have a, a loose connection to it, you don't really care that much yeah. as long as you're getting the gist of it. But uh, but yeah, so I, I think that that varies. Uh, but it, th- yeah, that if they are twisting the truth a little, that's not likely to affect my enjoyment of the series. I will say, after watching three more episodes, I think my opinion of the series has declined ever so slightly from Mm. the end of episode two to the end of episode five. I'm still into it, but the flaws are standing out a little more to Mm. me. I find that parts of the 1980s timeline are dragging. Um, Mm. And there are even a few scenes from the younger Monzone that feel redundant. I'm wondering if this isn't a series that would be better if it was a little shorter, like maybe 10 episodes instead of 13 is the perfect length. Although I, I guess I won't know until I'm done watching. Um, but uh, another thing in the 80s timeline, there are, in my view, too many lawyers being introduced, <laughs> and uh, and they're not as compelling as, you know, to make the obvious comparison to the People versus O.J. Simpson series, they're not as compelling as Johnny Cochran and Marsha Clark and Chris Darden. Um, right. And then there's this. This is perhaps an unavoidable flaw of the series, but we have such an unlikable main character here, especially in the later timeline that, that, you know, there's nothing about Monzon that makes you want to root for him. (laughs) There really isn't, is there? Yeah. I mean, the younger version may be a little, uh, although he still seems like a a, a hot tempered jerk, but um, you know, we've lived in the age of the anti-hero on TV for the last 20 years, but Tony Soprano and Walter White and Dexter Morgan and whoever else they were charismatic in their way, and yeah. and they had both dark qualities and likable qualities. Monzone is really hard to like. Um, yeah. But all that said, I like the show, and I, and I'm still fully hooked. Certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely going to go through it, uh, at least another three episodes, and we'll, we'll see we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um. I I do have a handful of other quick observations that aren't as much uh you know what I liked and what I didn't, mm-hmm. but just things that jumped out at me. So I'll run through these real quick. The boxing scenes, whether they're entirely accurate or not, are very well done. You know, this yes. this, this isn't Rocky. It's pretty realistic yes. boxing recreations. Um, the scene that stuck with me most from these three episodes was the one from their wedding night. When you see Monzone in bed with his first wife and you realize as they kind of pull out uh, that on their wedding night, they're sharing a room with like 10 of her siblings <laughs> yes. and her parents invite them to take their bedroom for the night. Yeah brilliant way to communicate the depths of their poverty in, yes. in one quick scene uh and uh, also cross my mind that boy that that would be a tough coronavirus house <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how we look at things through a different filter <laughs> yes um i also interesting to note that the uh muniz attorney is named fernando vargas risi i didn't realize that el Feroz fernando vargas is not boxing's original fernando vargas uh, uh. so there's that um tell me if you agree with this I wasn't impressed by the Benvenuti casting. You know, most of the other people are looking the part, right? Like 100%. Okay, good. Yeah, because like Tito Lector, they found a dead ringer almost to play him. But yeah, Benvenuti didn't look look much like Benvenuti. 
Yeah, I was, I was, I was looking at okay, I'm thinking almost facially, maybe almost, but not quite. And physique wise, though, I, I definitely <laughs> no. thought, no, 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 no. Right. Yeah. Um, also, uh, I kind of teased this on Twitter that I was going to have a take on it, but uh, I definitely could have done without the autopsy scene, uh, the oh. the full slicing open of her entire torso. Uh, didn't didn't need to see that. Even if there was some quality nudity involved, it was it was not worth the exchange. And of course, it's hard to know if that was a real naked woman or some right. sort of model uh, version of a human. Anyway, so uh, I, don't, I don't know if you were as uh, revulsed by, by yeah. that shot as I was. No, yeah. fine with it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And last thing. Uh, speaking speaking of uh, coronavirus and uh, 2020 changing our view of things. The scene in the bathroom with Nicolino Loche, uh, Loche wa- washed his hands very thoroughly afterward. So uh, looking at it through the 2020 prism, uh, Loche wins. He's the clear winner here. Right, especially when Monzone like, gives him a slur for right. the fact that he actually does wash his hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think, yeah, Monzone is on the wrong side of history on that one. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, and then they just, you know, stand in the bathroom and just light up a cigarette as they talk. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> different times different definitely different times all right that will do it for another episode of showtime boxing with raskin and mulvaney our thanks again to derek james for joining us boy i i love talking to him i hadn't yeah. talked to him before and what a great guy that was that was great um and remember you can watch spence brook and spence peterson on showtime this friday or any time afterwards on demand uh next week another top welterweight keith thurman comes into the spotlight as may 8th We'll see replays of his close wins over Sean Porter and Danny Garcia. So we'll discuss Keith one time Thurman on the next podcast. And we will also review episodes six, seven, and eight of Monzel. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening. Be safe, be kind, and be well. <laughs>